Hello, just a quick one before we get going. You will hear in the interview section of this podcast, my audio isn't quite as clear and crisp as it normally is. I think that's mainly because it was picking up a different microphone in my studio. So my apologies to Terence and also my apologies to you for that. It's still audible. It still is fine, but not quite having the quality that we normally have. So I just wanted to come on right at the start just to apologize for that. But do hope you enjoy this fantastic conversation that we're going to have today with Dr. Terence Ruth. The National Association for Primary Education has an SEND conference in association with the University of Bedfordshire on the 26th of April 2024. This is a hybrid event and available to anybody in person or online. Please go to nape.org.uk for more information. That's nape.org.uk. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. Thank you so much for joining me as always and please continue to share this with your friends, family, colleagues. It's the best way to really sort of share the, the stories that we're doing and, and really spread the word. So yeah, I really appreciate everybody who's who's taking the time to do that. Thank you so much indeed. Now today I'm delighted to be talking to Dr. Terence Ruth. Now Dr. Ruth is an advocate for public education, once serving as a teacher, principal and the parent of a son who attends public schools in Wake County. He is a former administrator for Wake County Public Schools and now serves as an education consultant to numerous non-profits. Dr Ruth led social justice organisations at a national, state and local levels with a reputation of being the implementation expert. He has worked in K-12 schools across Florida and in Wake County. Currently, Terence is a professor at NCSU and is the former president of the Justice Love Foundation. He is deeply engaged in diversity, equity and inclusion work across the city of Raleigh and the Triangle. And if that wasn't enough, he was also rally mayoral candidate in 2022. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Terence Ruth. Hi, Terence. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Far podcast. Great to be chatting with you. Always great to chat to people from America. And also, I just love the fact that you have so much kind of goodwill to give across the community. One of the things on Education on Fire that we talk about a lot is this sense that everyone has a stakeholdership, if you like, um, with with a child, you know, the community, the school, the parents, all that sort of stuff. And it seems like the the work that you're doing and your sort of vision for what you're trying to create is is exactly along those lines. So it's going to be a fascinating conversation. So, yeah, thanks so much for being here. Glad to be here. Brilliant stuff. So why don't you take us into your kind of your current day job and then we'll kind of chat a little bit around about all the different versions of that. Yeah, no, I, uh, currently um, I am a professor at the School of Social Work um, and I'm also a dual professor in African Studies at NC State University that's in North Carolina um, in Raleigh, the capital of North Carolina uh, on the East Coast um, in America. And, and my work prior to being a professor was in this, the Friday Institute, also at NC State University. Um, in, in that role, I uh, was a research associate where I would evaluate education policy. And so right now, my day job is really touching policy, research evaluation, advocacy, and really just it, it, the, the curriculum is, a, is for a practitioner. And so uh, I'm really equipping social workers to enter the world and many of them are entering the school environment 
So that's really important, isn't it, in terms of sort of having people that people can relate to, people that really understand what what children need. Because, I mean, it's kind of that sense of, you know, what are the kind of the nuts and bolts of just being in school and surviving and being the best person you can be before you can start thinking about, you know, educational attainment and, and all the things that go with that? Yeah, I, I, what's fascinating, um, post-pandemic, you've seen a re-emphasis on social workers, a re-emphasis on sort of the psychology of students, um, a re-emphasis on sort of mental health and well-being, um, which I think was on the peripheral for those who needed it, but now it seems to be more of the core of learning than it was prior. And so you sort of mentioned there sort of pre-pandemic pandemic and sort of post-pandemic as, as we sort of are now. Do you think that the the actual needs in the actual situation is different because of the pandemic? Or do you think it's like, say, it's just that refocus of the fact that people are more aware now and realise that, you know, as a as a world, we went through something and that shared experience sort of opened up the idea that we were all struggling or we all had issues that we kind of wanted to kind of frame in a way that was going to support us moving forward. Yeah, I'm going to answer that question, Mark, with just telling you a little bit of my background in education because it it helps lend to my answer. So I started my, my first teaching job was in an alternative school. Um, alternative schools in our uh, region focuses on kids who need either additional support in behavior or additional support um, due to some sort of physical or mental disability or additional support due to some sort of social condition. Um, and so my first job was a history science teacher uh, almost in a detention center. Um, so it was, almost as, it was almost as if I was in a youth jail, if you would say. Um, and my first job was waking kids up out their bunk, timing them in the shower, taking them to go get something to eat. And then I put on my teacher's hat. So I've had a journey where I've seen the conditions in the community right at the doorstep of my classroom. Some educators had the luxury of having a social worker that would deal with this, the conditions of the student or having a, an administrator in the school that deal with the social conditions of the students. I think post-pandemic, every teacher has my role. The conditions are entering the classroom and they're, they're sort of being moved into community. Um, and for me, I had started to ask the question, why is society producing this particular outcome? And post-pandemic, I think more educators are asking that question. They're seeing the influence of the social condition, the condition in which these kids go into their community and their homes. They're asking, how can we improve learning both in these four walls and out of these four walls? I think that's becoming more of a conversation than just trying to control the four wall structure. And what do you think can aid that? Because I think one of the things that struck me as we sort of got back into normal life, in inverted commas, mm -hmm. is the fact that from a sort of a policy standpoint, certainly here in the UK, it's very much kind of we need to get back to where we were before. We need to make it as it was before. We need to make sure standards are as it was before, having given students a little bit more of a leeway in those people taking exams because of the, the change of the, sort of the learning environment. Um, so, yeah, what's your sort of view on, on kind of how that's going to sort of work maybe going forward? Well, uh, here, and I'm, I'm going to zoom in to my state, North Carolina. We're having a unique conversation around public schools. 
Um, we have a, uh, a, a long-aged system of public education that now has competition with charter, private schools, home schools. That combination of schools is actually outgrowing in terms of new enrollment, the enrollment of public education. Um, and so you're seeing, and, and it's in our state, not every state, just in our state, it's positioned as competition. And so public school is trying to defend its value and also public school is trying to understand what happened during the pandemic. So in our state, we had the largest learning loss ever in history in our state. So students actually lost knowledge over that period of time. And we have sort of expedited a team of thinkers around uh, uh, this learning loss to try to better understand. Also, we had students just drop off the roster, literally disappear off of public school rosters. And so many of our public school institutions are trying to understand what happened to those individuals. Then we've seen a appetite for remote learning. So COVID introduced this remote learning and now we're starting to see a, a, a spike in the number of kids who are are willing to enroll in either homeschool or remote education. I say all of that to say that our policy is really still trying to understand where do we go from here? How do we create a system that works to promote learning for all kids and not just learning for those who can afford to be in certain institutions? Or uh, how do we better understand the conditions of COVID so that we can adopt our institution to those needs. And so we've seen some beta tests around post-AI careers um, that allow for our, our state to rethink what linear learning and, and accomplishments and achievements will look like. Uh, now you're starting to see where kids can opt in and out of options um, in public schools. And so you're starting to see some very cool, innovative beta tests around some concepts. Uh, but for the most part in our state, the policy that's been sort of moved forward is really trying to understand the landscape right now, post pandemic, and it's still not as clear as we will hope. And what's the kind of the thought, I wanna say the mass thought, because a lot of these things, like you say, if there's a group of people doing that, it sounds amazing just to even be, you know, having a proper conversation about this and how it can be part of it. Um, but are people generally across the board sort of adopting that in terms of as, as a possible way forward and, and sort of sort of t taking that on board and thinking, you know, schools could look different in the next year, five years, 10 years because of all that information you're able to gather? Or is the general feeling like that might be the case for some, but not for everybody? Yeah, so in our state, you, you have the tale of two regions. You have very rural, um, where that high school, that middle school, that elementary school, the K through 12 structure is the one of the largest employers of the town or the city. And then you have very high density um, urban cores like Raleigh's the capital. You have Charlotte, North Carolina. You have some urban cores where uh, they probably have some of the largest school districts in the country, uh, arguably some in the world. Uh, and so you have a tale of two uh, universes. Uh, what we're seeing, we're seeing disruption in staffing patterns. So we are still having problems staffing all schools, even in high density, high wealth communities. We're also seeing where our very um, uh, sort of middle-class, uh, sort of low-skill, 
um, jobs that sort of support the learning structure, those are hard to staff as well. So we're having a hard time finding bus drivers. We have a hard time. I mean, some of these very basic, uh, simple jobs that were tremendous to the function of the schools, um, all of those gaps, I think, are, are forcing a new innovative approach to education. It's actually forcing a conversation that didn't exist before. Um, and so for, for us, I don't think we had the luxury of, of uh, choosing or debating which view we want. We, it's clear that there's a crisis, um, a crisis in resources. And I think that's forcing the average person that wouldn't even know anything about schools. They know that their kid has had a substitute for all year. They know that their bus is not picking them up like it used to. Uh, so it's forcing the average person to be aware of issues. Um, but I do think to your question, Mark, there is a group of people who are not as optimistic about the way forward. And then there's a group that see this as an opportunity to really rethink and be creative around schools. Yeah, and I think that's a really important takeaway, isn't it? It's like the, those two different perspectives, like two sides of a coin. And I guess that's where the pandemic really came in. It's that kind of, well, we have no choice now. We're in kind of emergency mode. We're going to go online. We're going to do whatever we need to do to help everybody as best we can. And like you say, I can see people maybe didn't have access um, to internet or devices or like I say, or came off the rostra because it was easy for them to disappear and, and, and all right. of that kind of thing. But because of the crisis, um, things changed and very swiftly. Um, right. And and I think what you're saying there, which I really like, is the fact that you just have to decide what version you want That's to right. see. I want to see something which is going to be experimental. I want to see something which has the opportunity to come out of this in a positive light. And if it is a crisis, which, like I say, I think everyone involved in education will will see that because of the finances, because of, the, like I say, the staff shortages and, and just the practicalities of trying to keep things going in the old way. If you can see that as a okay, we can do this differently now. How can we do it differently? How can we bring the majority of people on board? How can we give them some of these sort of options to be able to say, I, I love that idea, you know, that you know, some of it may be being online, some of it in person. I think, you know, AI and technology is going to change it maybe so that, you know, teachers are going to be much more mentors and supporters right. and, right. and all of that kind of thing. And that's really exciting, but it is also, I guess, a fearful thing for some people as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I had the luxury of uh, facilitating um, a conference for a, a new organization that was produced out of policy at our, at our state legislature. And this organization is called Spark NC. Um, I encourage, encourage you to, to, to uh, check out their website, just spark, sparknc.com. But they were tasked with rethinking what it looked like to create opportunities for students who may not go on to college, may not go on to community college, but they are gifted in technology right now. <laughs> right now, as they're, as they're in their ninth, 10th, 11th grade, 12th grade, they have the ability to contribute to a tech industry right now. And so they were tasked with creating that opportunity. And this was my first time getting a chance to glimpse into how individuals and how groups and how legislators are rethinking education. And so they are trying to give a kid an opportunity while getting their high school diploma to leave high school and be ready for a career in tech immediately day one. And this is 
um, allowing teachers to stay in their lane, which they're comfortable. And many of the many of the teachers fit into those two boxes that you mentioned before. Some of them want to go back to their standards, wants to go back to. And then there's another group of teachers like, let's go, let's let's explore the opportunities. Um, Spark and C would be in the latter. It would, be, it would be in the former where they're trying to figure out how can we be aggressive in taking taking advantage of this opportunity. And so they had everyone. They had every major major tech company, IBM, SAS, Red Hat, Apple. Um, I mean, I can keep going. They all were at this tech conference for the state, and they brought kids from all over, rural, urban. And the kids had a chance to talk to these professionals. And the professionals said there's no linear way. Some professionals didn't go to college. Some professionals went to college. Some professionals were at Harvard. <laughs> so, so I mean, so the, the, so it, it it allowed for the kids to see human beings, and allowed for them to see their their appetite, their role, their desires for their future in these human beings. And it was cool, Mark, to see that as they rethink what learning looks like, they also have a chance to see people who have finished their journey and was able to talk to human beings. Yeah, I love that because the personal connection is key, isn't it, in so many different ways. And and I think I think what you're describing there, even sort of within your state, like you say, if it's very urban the where you live, as opposed to being very rural, your experience is going to be different. And so, you know, if you want a mass education, a public education, even within that, it's going to be different because your experience is different. And I think sure. when everything starts to become personalized, even if you've got general standard testing, even if you still have some things which are kind of uh, the same across the board, as soon as you can get across, and I think every pupil feels like it's my life, it's my learning as well. There are certain things I'm going to have to do. There are certain standards that people sure. are going to want to expect, you know, whether that's reading and writing or whatever the kind of the, the test is in inverted commas. But knowing that, you know, in this day of social media, I can actually contact this person. You know, like I say, oh, right. I, can, I can go to this event. I can ask That's this right. question. Um, I can realize that there is no one way of doing it. And then it becomes a very exciting thing. And I think it That's also right. takes away the sort of the disillusionment of kind of, why do you go to school? Because That's I've right. got to, <laughs> as opposed That's to, right. because That's I want right. to learn this, because That's I want right. to learn that, because I want to work for that tech company. <laughs> That's right. And, well, you, you know what's amazing is the, the very early parts of Spark and C, and again, I'm just touching the very top surface of this. This is, I wasn't a part of this journey, but I've, I, I heard their testimonies. Much of it was around language. What is, what is a course? What is a credit? What is, I mean, very basic things that we just throw around <laughs> um, in the policy. They had to rethink the language of how do we monitor growth and learning and success and education and advancement. Uh, so they, they spent a lot of time just thinking around the language. And then the second part of it that made it very difficult, outside of standardization, which means everybody's going to experience the same journey, they had to build in customization. The kids had to be able to choose. Hey, I didn't like this coding class. I want to go to this class. You know, like there, there was customization that was built into the structure. I think it was uh, pretty powerful. Um, in some of the most um, well well celebrated schools in our country, like High Tech High, they had they infused design thinking into their everyday learning experience, from elementary all the way to college. And kids are dynamic; their ideas are valued. The 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 uh, information that they are just considering is valued. Um, it's not just the completion of homework or just the completion of a course or a grade. 
just their very brainstorming sessions are, are valued. And so I think that's another way of rethinking uh, what learning looks like. Maybe you get this wrong and you try something different and that's celebrated. <laughs> Maybe, you know, so I just seen people be creative around what did they celebrate and what did they not celebrate. Yeah, I love that. And I think, I think the person in the classroom who's able to put their hand up and go, I don't know, or I want to ask more, or I want to dive into this, is the person that's on that path and the person who's sat there not putting their hand up when they really want to because they're thinking, I think I'm supposed to know this already and I'm not. And I'll just see how long I can keep my head down until someone finds that out, whether it's bad test scores or whatever. Um, And the culture of that and the atmosphere of that makes all the difference. And I kind of link it back to, I mean, you know, we're both podcasters. So we have this sense of, I didn't learn that in school and I'm pretty that's sure right. you probably did. So it's that kind of, you know, I love the fact it was like, I'm really liking this medium. That's right. How do I go about it? Oh, there's a course over here I could take and there's a community I can join here. I can ask questions about this. I love this part of it, but I don't like this part of that's it. Can right. I outsource that? Can I bring other people in who love part of it? And I just think, it kind of grows and it kind That's of right. gave me the sense, you know, it was really important that I had a traditional education in as much as reading, writing, budgeting, having the That's communication right. skills to to speak to people, to build a network, to start to grow the podcast. All of That's those right. things were important, but I could have got all of that in a different way. That's right. um, but the skill set of then building something and finding where that information was is much more valuable because as we That's start right. to go into video, as we start to do other things as part of um, certainly education on fire as a community, it's a really exciting process because you can see the same things that you went to before. It's just the, right. the bits that you need are different. That's right. Well, you, you know what, what, I, what I enjoy in terms of what you just shared? As a professor, when I go into my classroom, I'm at one of the universities where the GPA is out the roof. The entry GPA is, 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 is really impressive. What that tells me is that we have students who know how to be compliant to the text. They know how to read it and give that information back for the correct answer. The, 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 I think uh, the gap that I think that creates is that some of the students that enter my class as master's students, not just bachelors, they have a hard time asking those same questions you just shared, Mark. They have a hard time taking the text and say, I don't like that. What, what alternative views are in here? Um, that's not what I see in real life. So, so the text becomes something that they learn to mirror rather than critique. And so as you are building this podcast, you're critiquing. You're saying, I don't like this. I like this one. Um, this budget works for me. This one doesn't. Um, I don't need this line item. I think critical thinking um, as a skill that's learned at an early age um, and learned in the classroom is critical. Uh, so I went from an educator to policy. So I, I ran for mayor of the, the city I'm in. And people asked, why would you, why would an educator run for office? I said, education has everything to do with policy. Education has everything to do. And I said, education taught me how to read, how to analyze thoughts, how to critically think through decisions, how to um, understand justice. (laughs) What does it mean to do what's right? (laughs) Um, uh, Understand uh, 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 the complexities of human beings. But Marcus, if we don't elevate critical thinking, uh, we don't elevate trial and error, we don't elevate 
I think we miss opportunities in the classroom. I think we miss opportunities to really grow a dynamic human being that can go beyond what they learned in that textbook. Yeah, and I think it's very societal, isn't it, in terms of yes. what that, that what that means? Because I think what you've described there is there were a group of students who, whether they've actively known it or not, have become very adept at learning brilliantly in that particular way. If that's it's right. because they've been told that's the way, because the environment that way, you know, their sort of social circle is that way. Um, and they're learning all the time, whether you think they are or not. So right. like you said, it, you know, if even if it means that because of the current crisis in inverted commas, that's going to change because some of it has to be online or some of it has that's to be right. like this, or you have to put your hand up because we're not going to give you all the that's options right. because that's the way we're doing it. That's yeah. going to make a difference to everybody. That's right. That's right. Now, I, I agree. And, and I, I hope that um, through podcasts like yours and conversations where you're seeing education in our in our state, education is a hot topic. Um, and before you can go to school board meetings and there was no one in there. Now you go to school board meetings here and it's packed out. And I'm talking about local school board meetings. Um, I, I, I can't remember the last time I seen this much excitement across all the districts in terms of um, uh, education. So now we have policy makers thinking about what books they should ban or keep. You have policy makers talking about what curriculum should be um, embedded, not just curriculum broadly, but around the history of America. <laughs> what, 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 and so you're having these sort of heavy conversations around learning and learning at a, at, at a K through 12 journey that it has centered the public school and education, which the last five to 10 years, I don't know if it has sat at the center to where it's, a, it's it, governors are leading with that, with, with that yeah. on, their, on their platform. So I just, I'm glad that there is a recentering of education. And I know there's a lot going on that's, that's, that we're seeing decline in budgets uh, across the country in education, but I do see some opportunity. I do see some um, so, some signs of uh, opportunities that allow for education to really uh, uh, show some resilience in, in a season that's really tough. And I think um, when he was all mentioning before about the conference and all those companies that were part of that, I think one of the things that I hear quite a lot is the fact that, you know, the system was set up so that basically we had people who were going to go into the workforce and be compliant and, and do what they needed to do with the skills that they needed and we know that the world is very different now and the like i say the traditional system is still there but like i say with some change if, which That's is right. what this conversation is already showing us but also the fact we know that you know companies uh, across the board are looking for those critical thinkers and, right. and, and new people so a, a lot of the, the things that i'm hearing are the fact that it's also not it's great that governors are talking about it. It's great that parents and people in there are talking about it. But actually, companies and people That's not right. just showing up, but actually walking the walk, you know, That's actually right. being a guiding light, giving those opportunities, saying you can do it this way or that way, like you were mentioning before. And that That's kind right. of that community idea of all those stakeholders, like we were talking about before, really key, but not just talking about it, but actually making those difference. And then when you start to see that that's the case, then you can kind of, you can kind of sort of move forward with that. And, and I'm, I'm fascinated from, from a US point of view, and obviously you're very sort of integral in, in your state. How does it work across different states? Because of course, if we take Apple as an example, yep. they're, they're not saying, 
you can come and do, come and work for us if you're in California, just because that's where we're based. You know, we, we, we want people from around the country, around the world, you know, doing yeah. what we're doing. So, how does that kind of very sort of sort of localized version of this is what we're trying to do in our new opportunities within education, within from a state point of view, to that kind of but we're going into the really bigger world from here as well. Yeah. So uh, it, there's several layers to that conversation. So you're seeing where the social conditions and the social pressures in the economy is forcing much of those West Coast companies, those companies that were in Silicon Valley, they are finding additional hubs on the East Coast where the conditions may be better. And so in our state, we have some of those softer economic conditions for uh, Apple, SAS, et cetera. The remote learning, even though it's available and they, and they have employees all across the world, they're telling us that there's something special about homegrown, somebody who understands the soil, who understands the history, the stories. But also what I'm hearing, Mark, is they want someone not necessarily with a four-year degree. They want someone who they can help critically think, help use design thinking, help center the world and their creation, not just some theory or philosophy. Um, they're really recruiting a different human being <laughs> than, than before. They actually want the mind of the human being rather than just their arms and legs to move items left and right. Um, and so there's a different recruiting um, appetite I see with these organizations. And also, uh, you're now seeing a younger um, uh, recruitment age group. Also, you're seeing younger CEOs. So you're seeing an emphasis on not just what are the softer economic conditions for us? But also they're asking, how are you taking care of your residents? How are you um, taking care of the earth? How are you, like they're asking some of these questions. Um, and the research is saying that the, the, the individuals that they're recruiting care about that as well. They care about the earth. They care about the environment. They care about the school. They care about justice. They care about... So you see these companies really aligning with an audience that they want to see as employees and edu four year traditional formal learning is becoming second tier to that sort of headliner. Yeah. And I guess otherwise you've got people coming into your company who are institutionalized already yes. in that kind of university framework, that, that right. way of thinking, you know, rather That's than right. kind of, you know, that kind of raw wanting That's to right. just get on with it, like say with all those skills that they have. And I think, I think what you're saying about um, that kind of, the, you know, interest in the earth and, and the realities of things is I think that's yes. the other thing which has come about is the fact that, you know, I spend a lot of time online talking to people and I've got a great online community, but I'm also going to an event this week, which is in person because there is nothing like that's being right. in person as well. That's and I right. think that's the thing I like the most about it might be great to have a silver bullet that changes what education looks like overnight, but that isn't the reality of how it That's works. Right. You know, it's a little bit more gray than that. And as we start That's to right. sort of delve into that, it is that kind of, you know, I want to have a conversation, you know, around the water cooler as, <laughs> as right. it sort of traditionally right. was. You know, That's I want right. to better go out for dinner. I want to better sort of go and kick a football around. That's At right. the same time, I know I maybe can't do that every single day because maybe we're in different states or we're you know, right. hundreds of miles apart. But we can we can make it work more often than not, and the rest of the time we can still keep in contact, and we can still grow, and we can still get the work life balance. We can save, you know, the extra fuel or whatever it would be to do it. And I think that again comes back to that sort of excitement and and, and the idea of 
it can look different. And we've kind of yeah. witnessed how that could be different. And it may not be the same for everybody. But then you start to choose, I think, as a young person, well, who do I want to work for? That environment right. sounds That's really right. good. This is That's how right. I want to spend my life. You know, I don't want to be in the same company for 50 years. Not that I think that happens very much anymore. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, it's a completely different way of, of sort of starting your career from that sort of educational standpoint. Well, I mean, it, again, Mark, you, you're hitting on all the, the really the, the, the top conversations. Um, you have employees that are determining the the the, the expectation. They're, 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 if they want to stay remote and you don't offer that service, they just move on. Um, they would rather sacrifice well-being and comfort for the rigor of a job that don't respect their their um, desire for or work in a certain way. Um, and so you're really starting to see a very empowered voice in, in the employer, employer world at, at a personal sacrifice. Um, and so most of the uh, major institutions are f- trying to figure out how do we engage this new employee? <laughs> how do we engage this new human being? But what's also connected to this, you're starting to see that same audience challenge traditional government as well. There's a way in which they want to see their city run. There's a way in which they want to see transportation. There's a way in which they want to see a citywide standard for, uh, uh, for salaries or for um, uh, hours uh, work, um, uh, um, dollars per hour work. There's a, there's a way in which everything is changing, not just the school structure. Um, they, they don't want to see traditional politicians they want to see somebody who's human. They want to see somebody who you can see them in the grocery store. There's a new appetite for, uh, for government. There's a new appetite for how they want to work. There's a new appetite for how they want to learn. It's really a broader shift. Um, and we have very uh, top-heavy institutions that are trying to turn that Titanic. And it's going really slow. But the environment that they're trying to turn is already moving at a faster pace. They're already <laughs> they're already making decisions um, right now, um, um, re- regardless of how how fast that Titanic is moving. So this question is actually it's probably a whole podcast, um, <laughs> but, I, but I, I, I think you brought up a really fascinating point from from what you just said. Do you think that change in that appetite is going to change the way politicians turn up? in the current system or do you think it's powerful enough that the actual system itself will end up changing because people want the results to be different and therefore you know whether that's more than a two-party system or whether it's kind of the way the elections are are run or worked or however that happens to be because i just sort of thinking from from a uk standpoint you know these same sorts of conversations i think are happening here Hmm. but the majority yeah i think the majority of people who are kind of in power or running for power or want to do that are coming from you know a small part of society and so while they're sort of making all of those rules the democracy is slightly more watered down i think so i'm I'm sort of fascinated what you think about that (laughs) we could be here all year no 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 i i i think you you touch a very powerful point i mean you're now starting to see non-traditional candidates dominate our party structure. Our our former president was not traditional. <laughs> you, you couldn't really place that person in yeah. a party. Um, even now, they don't know what to do. <laughs> I mean, they don't. I mean, but if you leave the federal government, you zoom in. The more successful 
um, like mayors in Miami. He has a, a city cryptocurrency. He has where the city is paying back um, every month money to residents. I mean, he, these are very aggressive policies. It's not traditional. Um, it doesn't sound traditional. Campaigns are being uh, operated differently. But to your point, there's still an, an old guard that is still making these decisions. And so we haven't really made a pivot one way or the other, but this is what I'm seeing. There's a group that if we don't have a pivot in a different way, we'll have less trust in democracy. And, and, I, and I think they say, they're saying it right now. <laughs> they, I mean, it's not just some theory or just looking at trends and voting patterns. People are saying this out their mouth. Um, and so I think there's, a, there's an appetite for um, not just a new style, but they want to see a more responsive leadership. They want to see a leadership that's actually representative of a larger percentage of people. They actually want to see um, a, a, uh, a smarter local government, uh, state government, federal government that actually is getting data in real time and not just around elections. If you look at all the major tech companies, if I go to the grocery store, when I leave that grocery store, they're sending me a survey. They know how much I saved. They, they're tracking my, <laughs> they're, they're understanding me in real time. And we still have uh, structures, age-old structures that have yet to be as responsive to people as they could be without leaning into the, 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 uh, the big data sort of um, fears of, of residents. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And like I said, it just comes back again to that. There's such exciting opportunities there from that point of view. And like I say, you know, and it sounds to me, you know, if I was a younger person listening who thought, well, politics isn't for me, you know, because I can't make a difference. I think for all of these reasons that we've been talking about, I might be thinking, do you know what? I want real democracy, which is actually right. me being able to stand up That's and right. say, this is what I want, whether you get That's elected right. or whatever. is That's know, right. It's, it's a different conversation, maybe. But just the fact that this is how I how I want it to look like for someone right. to kind of be there for me, if it's not me, my, myself, as it were. Yeah, well, it's, it's a really important, really fascinating conversation. <laughs> it could be a whole series, yeah. but... but ties in exactly because that's you know, right. education comes out of exactly those conversations right. and, and those people's focuses. That's right. Well, well you know, Mark, um, we, we have a rich history in our country of sparking statewide national change through the school system. So the bus boycott of the 60s and early, late 50s, 60s, 70s, that was local. That was, just, that was, just, that was a school board. It changed our country integrating the schools, 50s, 60s, 70s, that was local. Uh, that, that, that all happened, the, the sit-ins, where we were you know, making a change for the conditions that we wanted in our country, that was a negotiation with the commissioners and the mayor. And so you're starting to see people make a stand similar, saying we want different conditions, even if we don't get the chance to benefit from our protests or not, or from our stance or not, we want to see a different condition. So no, I, I, I agree with you, Mark. Yeah, and I think, and just to sort of round up that side of it, I think one of the things that traditionally in the past has been that when there's a critical mass of that, then the government or the people in control are saying, oh, that's a great idea. Yes, I'm glad we've thought of that. And then, it, <laughs> then it becomes policy and there's change, which, you know, you could argue is, is great because at least it gets there in the end. But I think... 
I think the reality is, is like you say, it's going to be much more subtle than that, and, and right. it'll, be, it'll be in faster time. But yeah, that, right. that always that always makes me laugh. That if you want something done, make sure it's their idea, and then it went away. I'm always fascinated for people involved in, in education in any way. Is there um, an education experience that you've had or a teacher that you had that you remember that certainly kind of feeds into the way you are or the way you think as an educator now sort of looking back? Yeah, so I, I, I would have to say this too. Um, there's one when I was an educator and there's one post uh, uh, being an educator. I'm, I'm still in, as a, a professor, but I'm talking about K through 12 uh, learning. So when I was uh, in my bachelor's degree, I had a professor. Her name was Dr. King at the time. She was the adjutant to Bernice King, which is one of Dr. King's daughters. And she just said, I'm going to invest in you. I'm going to, uh, I see something special. And I wasn't the top student, Mark. I didn't have the top GPA. I wasn't, there was nothing fascinating. I didn't... (laughs) I didn't, you know, blow anything out the water, you know, and uh, and that educator said, I, I see something. And she, I had a chance to introduce the late uh, John Lewis. I had a chance to uh, 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 meet Coretta Scott before she died. I had a chance. So she showed me that there is not just an academic intellectual exercise, but there's also um, some practical things you can do so that life is better. There, there's, a, there's a justice lens that forces you to do things now, not just in the academic intellectual writing space, but to feed someone, to get somebody some shoes, to make sure that there's homes. That was one that her name is Dr. Dr. Momon King. She's now the president of Oglethorpe University. The second one came later in my career when I was around policy, and that's Dr. Dudley Flood. Dr. Dudley Flood in North Carolina, he was charged with integrating the schools around racial lines. And it was his job to go around the whole state and make sure that we were obeying the federal law. And his humble spirit, he's now in his 90s. And uh, I just sit underneath him and his humility, his wisdom, his ability to lead in crisis. Some people lead when it's amazing. When, when the economy is great, they love to lead. When, <laughs> when there's abundance of homes, they love to lead. But this, this, this gentleman led in crisis. And he did it with such peace and humility. And he's always feeding back into a younger generation of leaders. And so he has been tremendous for me. And he still loves education. Education is still his core. He believes that a good society starts with education. And so those two individuals, Dr. Dr. King, Dr. Momon, and then Dr. Uh, Dudley Flood has been tremendous for me. I absolutely love that. And it's the thing that I hear that makes the biggest difference, I think, to so many people. That being seen, that understanding opportunity that, you know, is giving you your, you know, the first steps in your life in the way that you were going to go. I mean, what more powerful thing is there? And I think just to tie that back with what we were talking about before, you know, no silver bullets, no change in education right. system, no That's whatever, right. but that one conversation, that one That's person, right. that one passion, which was then sort of shared, has made a difference. And that ripple effect moves on. And I think um, that that always fills me with a, so much positivity, because no matter what the external things that you think That's you right. can't change, you can make that difference in the here and now in the, in the next right. conversation you're going to have. And I think it's such a powerful thing. That's right. Um, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Or indeed, is there a piece of advice you might give a, 
a younger Terence now looking back. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I also yeah. slightly caveat this with the fact that we also know that the younger people might not have taken that on board, given that they <laughs> younger as well. I, I, um, I was told this one verse one time, and it and it made a difference for me. Um, it said, "You should uh, do justice, love mercy, not just." not just care about mercy or it says, love it, be passionate, be infatuated with, with mercy. So we love to hold up justice, but we don't want to provide mercy to people. And then it said, walk humbly. And so those were the three things, do justice, make sure you're doing what's right. Love mercy, make sure that that's a passion, that, that it's in every decision you make, it's in every act you do. And the very thing is to remain humble. And that was the advice that I, um, I my younger Terrence would have loved justice, um, but I would have had a hard time with mercy. <laughs> and so um, that, that advice has stayed with me to this day. Yeah, I love it. And these things, like you say, you you pick them up and you use them as as you're getting That's older. Right. But my feeling is always if you've never heard them, then you never get the chance to do that. Right. So whether you think it's the right time or not, if it feels right. right to you as the person that's sharing it or or hearing it, then I think it's such a such an important thing. Um, is there a resource you'd like to share? And this can be personal or professional or whatever, but it can anything from a podcast, a book, video, film, song, but something that's had had a bit of an impact that you'd like to let people know about. Yeah, so I, I have a podcast called Ill Illogical by Truth. Um, and it's a podcast that tries to um, make logic out of the illogical functions of local government. And people are normally confused, don't know how they can change the world. Normally it seems daunting. We, we idolize histo his historical figures. So we can't be MLK. We can't be Martin Luther King. We can't be you know, Lincoln, we can't be any of these figures that we idolize because we, they're perfect now. And so this podcast tries to humanize um, the acts of power and being empowered. And so for me, I started this podcast with uh, a figure called uh, Ella Baker. And uh, most people aren't going to know who that is. Um, and uh, Ella Baker was a, a, a lady who started the sit-ins. She's the one who in a basement at a university, at a, at a HBCU, a historically black university. Those are universities that was created because the blacks couldn't go to white universities. So, it, so you're talking about in a second tier, as it would have been categorized, in a second tier university, in the basement, not at the president's office, in a basement, she started the sit-ins and it ended up changing the whole country. So I tell people, all you need is a basement. <laughs> you don't need... You don't need, she, she didn't have this amazing degree. She just had a basement. As so I tell people, all you need is a basement. You can change your, your, your town, your city, your community, your school, your state, your country. Yeah, I love that. Absolutely love it. And the acronym FIRE here is important for us, obviously, here at Education on Fire. And by that, we mean feedback, inspiration, resilience, and empowerment. What is it that strikes you when you hear that? Uh, number one is resilience. Uh, we're we're in very tough times. We have been in tough times, and uh, and s some economists are are forecasting some harder economic times coming in the near future. Um, and sometimes it can be hard to be hopeful in those seasons, but humans have a tremendous story of resilience, 
a tremendous story. Uh, schools have tremendous stories of resilience. It was once <laughs> against the law to educate black individuals in America. And there were still schools during that time. <laughs> there were still, so there's a resilience in the human beings um, that, I, that I just appreciate about the title, you know, education on fire. And I just think there's a resilience in education. And I think there's hope in that. Fantastic. Well, Terence, thank you so much for sharing all of that wisdom and insight. I think we, we could have probably chatted all day and tomorrow and the day <laughs> after. <laughs> um, so yeah, I really appreciate your passion and, that, and that's why I love what I do. It's just a chance to meet people mm-hmm. and have this conversation. So yeah, thank you so much indeed. Um, do leave people with um, a place that you want to send them, you know, where they can connect, um, find out more about it. Yeah, uh, you can go to truth, T-R-U-T-H, four, F-O-R, Raleigh, R-A, L-E-I-G-H dot com. Truthforraleigh.com. Yeah, see my podcast, articles I've written. Um, and just would love to to chat with you. Fantastic. Thank you so much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community. With over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.